Good evening, everybody. Hope you had a good Sunday or a good weekend, rather. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. And this is our reading Sunday. And we're going to be reading Rebecca F. Pittman's book about witchcraft and the Salem Witch Trials. Anyway, I am Charlotte Cosa, your host. And I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. Let me push my buttons. There we go. And uh, we're 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means that if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you in one form or another. It might take us a couple hours, but we're within range to help you out. We also have affiliate teams in Oregon, Washington, Nevada. Oregon, Washington, yeah, Oregon, <laughs> sorry. Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. All right. Well, this is the day. This is Sunday. This is the day that we read that I read from a uh, paranormal book, you know, book obviously having to do the paranormal. And uh, we've been doing this uh, since last Christmas, since just before last Christmas. So it's almost uh, a year now that we've, uh, I've been doing it. I keep saying we, but I say we because of my producers and stuff. So uh, we've, I, I've been doing this read and it's, it's worked out really nicely. Tonight now is going to be a little different because the holiday season's starting and I picked out and got permission to use a uh, book written by Sylvia Schultz that uh, has to do with darker Christmas topics. So it's going to have Yuletide, scary Yuletide stories in it. And so we're going to start reading that next Sunday. The next Sunday at 6.30 will be the first time we read that book. But in the meantime, we're going to finish finish off the, the next few chapters of the Salem Witch Trials. And then we're going to go ahead and put this away and, you know, until the uh, first of the year. And then we'll start, we'll pick up where we left off with it. Um, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you see, um, hit that follow button because I'm always looking for followers and also um, hit the like button, right? If you're watching from uh, California Haunts Ghostly Events page, please hit that follow button because like I said, we're always looking for followers, always. If you're watching from YouTube tonight, uh, be sure to uh, hang on, hit that subscribe button. We have more than 450 videos over there and they're all different topics. So I think there's something over there for everybody so please hit that subscribe button and if you like the show again um you know hit the like button also if you like what you see and you want to let people know about it please do that i mean we're I, i'm looking to increase you know our viewership so uh you, even if you have relatives or something at home that you want to share it with or even people that don't live with you that you want to share it with please do that please be sure to share, share the show you know tell them about us um unfortunately youtube shows us no love so the more of you guys that share this show around, the uh, better it's going to be for us as far as, you know, getting the subscribers and followers and whatnot. So I'd really appreciate it if you did that. That ticker at the bottom, that's because we are a nonprofit. And, um, well, we act as nonprofit. And so, which means that I own it. And everything comes out of my pocket. We don't make any money to do any of this at all. We live on, we survive on it. This show survives on donations. And what the what those donations do is they help pay the bills, like the internet bill, computer dies, you know, things like that. These books, I have to pay for some of these books. So it comes out of that fund. So if you can find it in your heart, to think of it as a tip even, you know, to send me a tip, that would be great. And that's Cali that's uh, paypal.me at California Haunts or at Venmo, if you're uncomfortable with PayPal, you can do that uh, Venmo at California Haunts. It's just that easy. But it does that stuff helps me pay my pay my monthly bills to keep the show on the air. Anyway, we'll give people a few more minutes to come in, and then we're going to commence the reading. And like I said, this will be the last read of this for 2022. 
and in 2023 we'll be back and finish the book off okay because we're gonna we're gonna shift it into holiday mode which is kind of fun uh i understand i mean we had a, we had sylvia schultz on here this last week and she said that there were some very interesting stories she's got she's got more than 120 stories in that other book and uh, some are christmas themed some are holiday themed and some are winter themed so it's kind of kind of like hallmark you got a you got a little mixture of sort of, of seasons in there but it should be an interesting book and uh that's what we're reading for the holidays uh welcome everybody and uh you know like like i usually say in my intro grab anything you want to eat popcorn and snacks beer i don't know i don't care put 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 your fluffy slippers on sit there in your nighty and your robe and whatnot and just sit back dim the lights a little bit and uh listen in now i want to apologize ahead of time because this book um rebecca uh, rebecca Pittman's very thorough so she does get stuff from court documents and historical doc you know she does get information for sometimes court documents historical documents and whatnot so like last time we last week when i read this she uh had put in this testimony that had been written by one of the people involved with with the trials and it's written in old english so if i stumble a little bit reading this stuff that's why because there's spellings in there that mean what you know i know what it means but it's not spelled that way so i'm trying to figure out what they are okay you know and there's different things like that that's in there so just bear with me just like i had to figure out the english pound and all that i don't know these things right sterling and all that all right let me turn let me open up the book and away we go uh when we left off last week let me put this over here okay when we left off last week they had just arrested some of the perpetrators that were uh, accused of being witches and they had started to do formal interviews and that's why like i said i got tripped up sometimes over the language that they had written stuff down in so they're still at that point where these where, where these women are on trial but you know the interesting part of all this is that some of the accusers aren't even teenagers yet some of the accusers are 10 11 12 of these girls you know of these women or these girls so it's it's kind of it's kind of all one-sided the way they're accusing you know this is all true story stuff it's all going to be names that you guys have heard you know that are synonymous with the salem witch trials that's what's in this book i mean she went truthfully you know true you know really truthful with this and remember you can get this book on amazon you know if, if you want to read it after i read it you can go ahead and do that or maybe you want to read it when you know over the holiday i don't know you know whatever works for you so let me power up my ancient uh tablet here and uh we'll get on with this it's been a good weekend i've got a lot done this weekend including reading for you guys And a quick note too: tomorrow's show is going to be at 3 p.m. Pacific. So if you if you're looking for the show, you know if, if you can watch live, that's great. If not, watch it later on in the evening. Okay. And it just did this stuff. Hang on, it does this all the time. It just went black on me. I know I have no storage space. Tell me something I don't know. That guy said it's antiquated. Okay. 637 so we're at chapter 10 which is cauldron of fear so here we go the inhabitants of salem village let me get this in a spot where i can move my head around a little bit 
The inhabitants, of course, I need it to enlarge because I'm blind. Okay. The inhabitants of Salem Village may have looked out upon the spring thaw that March and seen not the promise of new birth, but a plague of death. What was happening to their city on the hill? Biblical references for the name Salem were ones of hope and promise. And Melchizedek, <laughs> I'm going to try this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Genesis 14.18 And Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Salem came from Hebrew Shalom. Shalom. Usually said to be another name for Jerusalem and to mean peace. The happenings in Salem that muddy month of March brought anything but peace to its community and those of the neighboring towns who watched out, who watched out in horror. The dilemma was this. The Puritans believed the devil was very real and that witches were as deadly a threat as the Indians burning villages along the coastline. Others had been tormented in recent years in Boston and other places, and the accused offenders hanged. Excuse me. It was not a stretch to believe it was happening here, though. Why? Probably bothered, why probably bothered the righteous among them even more. What sins had been committed within their boundaries that would bring God's wrath upon them? For to deny the devil was to deny God. There were, there were two sides of a religious coin. In the early months of 1692, the face of that coin was showing something defiantly ungodlike. Perhaps the most relevant quote concerned a prior reverend of Salem Village, George Burroughs, who would find himself accused not just of witchcraft, but as the ringleader of the coven. Thomas Putnam Jr. referred to him as a wheel within a wheel. It meant one of the witches was a warlock, and not just any warlock, but a reverend. The dictator, the, sorry. <laughs> the dictator, I can't say this word, dictonomy, I guess that's the word, was that there were two puppet masters involved in the witch trial accusations. The villagers who saw the girl's afflictions are as real believed the devil was behind it. Those few who saw the accusers as faking their fits saw something quite different. Someone besides the Prince of Air and Darkness was pulling the afflicted strings. Did they have one puppet master manipulating the second? Did Satan, in his invisible chess game, maneuver the bishop and knight, among others, and those pieces in turn maneuver the pawns? It may well have been a wheel within a wheel for many of the denizens of Essex County. The weight of naming a member who fell under the church covenant was still bearing down upon the selectmen of Salem Village. Thomas Putnam Jr., perhaps aware that the blame would fall upon him and his household, wanted to make sure his daughter Anne had indeed been attacked by Martha Corey's shape. He sent for the woman to come and see Anne in person. Martha may have welcomed the invitation to put an end to the nonsense once and for all. An arrogant, abrasive woman... She clearly saw herself as above the, sh the, sh the shenanigans. If this young whelp of a girl could fool these foolish grown men with her antics, it was up to her, Martha, to unveil the pretty little trick. It was a mistake she would live to regret. Pride goeth before the fall was never more relevant than Martha's haughty arrival at the Putnam home on March 14, 1692. The fact that Abigail Williams was now accusing Corey as attacking her, along with Elizabeth Proctor, was as yet unknown to the gospel woman. 
the moment Martha Corey stepped across the threshold of Thomas Put Putnam Jr.'s home. She may have realized her mistake. She had only heard of reports of the girl's sufferings and terrifying fits and wailings. But now, upon coming face to face with Corey, Ann Jr. shrieked and fell to the floor, contorting into unbelievable spasms of her head, hands, and feet. It appeared that some unseen force was choking her. Her parents, Thomas and Ann Putnam Sr., watched on in horror. Edward Putnam, Ann Jr.'s uncle, and Mercy Lewis, the Putnam 17-year-old maid, also watched the spectacle in astonishment. Anne, gasping and choking, managed to yell out that it was Goody Corey afflicting her. The moment she cried out Martha's name, Anne's tongue thrust from her mouth and her teeth clamped down upon it, as if to bite it off. It was clear to those watching that the witch Corey was trying to silence the girl. Anne regained control of her speech long enough to scream out, There is a yellow bird a-sucking between your forefinger and middle finger. I see it. Puritan children were raised on the Bible. They read their scriptures daily. That the Bible associates birds of the air as evil is found in many verses. Matthew 13:4. the birds eating the seeds are called the wicked one. Mark calls them Satan, and Luke ref references them as the devil. <coughs> Therefore, birds of the air are a negative symbol. Revelation 18.12 came closest to aligning with what the children of Salem were going through. And an angel cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a, a habitation of demons, a prison for every fall soul, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. The color yellow was associated with envy and jealousy. Upon Anne's accusation of seeing a yellow bird suckling between Corey's fingers, the woman instinctively rubbed at the spot. Anne declared the bird vanished. It was not lost on the spectators that Sarah Good had also been accused of suckling yellow birds. Anne next accused Martha of being responsible for Bathsheba Pope's blindness on the previous Sabbath by clamping spectral hands over the woman's eyes. It was with the next outburst that the small company of witnesses came undone. Anne looked into her, parent, her parents' fireplace and claimed she saw a man roasting on a spit. Goody Corey, Anne screamed. You'd be a turning of it. With that, Mercy Lewis, who had been watching with rapt attention, grabbed up a stick and swung at the hearth where Anne was pointing. Stories of Indians burning their victims with fire over a roasting pit as was well known. Mercy Lewis, witnessing such heinous acts with her own eyes during the attacks in Maine, was perhaps the most susceptible to the vision Anne was seeing. It was also a reference to the attacks by a witch on the Goodwin children mentioned earlier. Cotton Mather, in his memorable providences, claimed that in 1688, the young John Goodwin, 11 years old at the time, said he was being roasted on an invisible spit, run into his mouth and, and, and out of his foot. He lying and rolling and groaning. Upon Mercy's strike, the roasting spit vanished, only to reappear again. Anne cried the, cried the man roasting had looked at her. Mercy swung again. Do not, if you love yourself, Anne screamed to warn the maid. The hysteria gripped both girls as Anne screamed that Goody Corey had struck Mercy with an iron rod for interfering. Both the girls fell screaming to the floor, writhing in pain, and begging Corey to leave the house. But the show wasn't over yet. 
Mercy wailed that there were other witches in the room, shadowy figures she could not make out. I won't, I won't, she cried. They would have me to write. The convulsions continued until the Putnamman asked Martha Corey to depart. What she felt as she stepped into the late afternoon light is anyone's guess. The first shivers of fear may have played across her nerves as she made her way home in the failing light. The Putnam household was not yet done with the paranormal. Mercy Lewis, the Putnam's maid, grew worse. It took several men to hold her down as her fits became more severe. They finally managed to seat her into a chair and watch her. Around 11 that evening, to their horror, they claimed they watched as Mercy's chair, with the girl still seated in it, inched toward the fire blazing in the Putnam hearth. The men grabbed the chair and said it kept moving, dragging them along with it, until Edward Putnam blocked the chair's path and lifted it. She was only inches from going feet first to the flames. It is with tales from witnesses such as this retelling that many wonder how such things could happen if not a result of unseen forces. That's a fair question. Mass hysteria seems unlikely, as the three men claim to have been holding onto the chair. Was it a case of poltergeist activity associated today with the teenagers' raging emotions? Their negative energy causing objects to move and even fly about a room? Emotion has incredible strength, as shown in the report of a terrified mother lifting a car from a trapped child. Had Mercy's long, had Mercy Lewis's long skirts hidden her feet moving the chair initially? With the men holding onto the chair, had she continued to rock it back and forth as they struggled to get hold of it? Will we ever know? Back at the Cory farm earlier that week, animals at the home began to act strangely. An ox that had, only moments before, walked from the woods, suddenly fell to the ground and began dragging his hinder parts as if he had been hip-shot, Giles Corey claimed. Then moments later, it was back up on its feet as if nothing had happened. Their cat was strangely taken on sudden and looked near death. Martha advised Giles to, not, to knock it on the head. Giles was hesitant to kill it. Moments later, it too jumped up and was fully recovered. As Giles contemplated these strange events, he began to notice his wife Martha acting oddly late at night. He watched her kneeling before the fireplace as if in prayer, but no words came from her mouth. Martha Corey's spirit was still active, according to Elizabeth Hubbard, who said Goody Corey's shape appeared to her on March 15th. But Martha Corey was not the only church-going woman being named by mid-March. Anne Putnam Jr. declared a new specter had appeared to her. She saw the apparition of a pale woman seated in her grandmother's chair. The witnesses in the room around her asked breathlessly who saw her, who, who she saw. She waffled, saying the shape was indiscernible at first, but said she thought she could recognize where the woman sat in the church meeting house on Sundays. And Putnam Sr., her mother, and their maid Mercy Lewis persisted as Ann Jr.'s vague answer as to who, who is it brought forth no one's name. Exasperated, Mercy and Ann Sr. began suggesting names of who the woman might be. The young girl finally agreed to one of the names, perhaps the one put forth with the most vigor. This was an elderly church this was an elderly, this was an elderly church woman held in high regard to the community. She was a member of the church in Salem Town, but regularly attended Reverend Paris's assembly, as the meeting house was very near to her farm. Her name as an accused witch would rock the village and cause an outpouring of shock and protestation.
and Putnam Jr., egged on by Mercy Lewis and Ann Putnam Sr., had just looked into the invisible world and plucked out 71-year-old Rebecca Nurse. On March 15th, Abigail Williams also claimed to see Goody Nurse as one of the witches tormenting her. Rebecca Nurse's sister, Mary Etsy, lived just over the northern Salem village boundary in Topsfield. It was the nurse's native township. Many of the Putnam farms lay near this boundary, and land disputes between the Topsfield farmers and Putnam clan were well known. Hemmed in and prevented from expanding their land holdings, the Putnams continually disputed the two towns' boundary lines. It was such a reported grievance that led Rebecca Nurse's son-in-law, John Tarbell, to call upon Thomas Putnam Jr. household after the accusation against his mother-in-law was made. He asked young, young, young Anne who was it that told her that it was Goody Nurse. Misspellings. <laughs> yeah. According to Tarbell's written account, Mercy Lewis, the Putnam maid, said it was Goody Putnam that said it was the Goody Nurse. Goody Putnam said it was Mercy Lewis that told her. Thus they turned it upon one <laughs> see I told you the, the spelling. Plus they turned it upon one another, saying it was you, and it was you that told her. The salient point is that in Junior's special powers of discernment, and to whose own stepmother had deprived her of her inheritance, as had her husband Thomas been cheated out of this. Meanwhile, reports from nearby Andover and Ipswich were coming in, odd events that before the witchcraft hysteria may have been looked at as strange coincidence, were now viewed with more nefarious meanings. Neighbors were looking at neighbors with eyes of suspicion. One had to think again before bickering with another. If the butter soured, the well ran dry, or a person became suddenly ill after an argument over the cost of goods, the failings were now looked at as the workings of the devil. It was not a safe time to be in Essex County. And Putnam Sr. Excuse me a minute. Okay. The tormented girls had rattled the village with their tales of flying specters, rack limbs, and bite marks. But now older women were joining the ranks of the accusers. Bashua Pope had already claimed unexplained blindness, and it was Ann Putnam Jr. who had blamed it on Martha Corey. Other adult women began crying out, including Sarah Biver, a malicious woman who was not adverse to spreading gossip and rumors of scandal. She and her husband worked as hired help, and her voice would be raised against the accused on several occasions. A widow thought to be Margaret Goodale also joined the accusers. Her inclusion would prove a detriment to Giles Corey, who had been accused of murdering her stepson. Among these matrons stepped Anne Putnam Sr., a beleaguered woman with demons of her own that spilled over to the witch trials. Anne Carr Putnam Sr., as mentioned earlier, was married to Thomas Putnam Jr. Both had been cheated out of their inheritances by family members. Anne had lost seven newborns during her prolific pregnancies. Her sister before her had also been cursed with a plethora of stillborn babies. Anne's older sister, Mary, had been married to Reverend Bailey, the same minister that had been hounded by inhabitants of Salem Village until he could no longer take the subterfuge. His young wife felt the malice of the community keenly, especially when she buried one infant after another while dealing with the stress of a bickering congregation. She finally died, beaten down and brokenhearted. For Mary's younger sister, Anne, it would be something that haunted her dreams. Often, she saw her sister Mary and 
her dead babies come to her in dreams in their winding sheets in the winding sheets they were buried in they reached out to her in piteous supplication for help as Anne was herself suffering from the loss of children she may have felt that that the same hatred in the village that had done her sister's death was also responsible for her own misfortune to her unstable mind her sister's spirit was begging her to ferret out the parties responsible for her losses some authors have theorized that Anne Senior sent her 12-year-old namesake to the Paris parsonage to, div to divine from Tatuba's fortune-telling what the Putnam future might hold. With the plague of losses the elder Anne had dealt with over the years, perhaps the uncertainty of the future held was too horrifying to face. When her daughter began manifesting what appeared to be a witch's revenge, did it unsettle her already fragile mind with guilt for what she had brought about? Shortly after Martha Corey's accusations became public, Anne Senior began to see into the invisible world as well. Saddled with more of the chores that young Anne and her maid Mercy... Okay, sorry, sorry about that. Okay, sorry. Let me go back on there. There we go. Okay, back on her. Okay, sorry. Wow, okay, hang on a second. I, this skipped on me, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry about that. Settled with more of the chores that young Anne and her maid Mercy, Lewis, had gotten out of in their afflicted states, five other children to care for, and a husband's growing anger at the people in the village he felt had wronged him, she was becoming increasingly unhinged. To add to her stress, she found she was again pregnant. All the old fears of stillborn babies came back to haunt her. It is staggering to see the impact this one Putnam family had on the witchcraft trials. Thomas Putnam Jr. would become responsible for filing half of the 21 formal complaints. It is proposed that he and his wife whispered the names of, the, of these suspected witches to his daughter Anne, or she overheard the names tarnished over the years beneath her father's roof. Anne Jr., the most prolific of the accusers, would go on to name 19 people, 11 of whom were hanged. Her name appeared on no less than 400 witchcraft documents. It was a house fueled by perceived wrongs, slights, and misfortunes. The lid put on the simmering pot of rage had just blown. The Putnams found relief in their sufferings by pulling down those whom they felt had cost them monetarily and spiritually. As Anne Senior lay on her bed that March afternoon, hoping for a moment's rest, saying she was wearied out, she was instead visited by Martha Corey's evil specter. According to Anne Senior, Goody Corey fell upon me with dreadful tortures and hellish temptations. Anne claimed the witch brought her a little red book in her, in her hand and a black pen urging me, urging me to writ on her book. Shortly thereafter, Rebecca Nurse's specter joined Corey's shape in their assault on Mrs. Putnam repeatedly torturing her because I would not yield to their hellish temptations. She told others only the divine saving grace of God had kept her from being destroyed. The list of accusers was growing. Abigail Williams was now joined by Elizabeth Hubbard, Mercy Lewis, Anne Putnam Jr., or Senior, I'm sorry, and soon Mary Walcott. Little Betty Paris had been whisked away to Salem Town in an effort to save the poor creature from further attacks. Sarah Bibber had posted an affidavit against Sarah Good, and Belshua Pope had claimed temporary blindness due to witchcraft. 
Salem Village looked about the chaos, Bibles clutched to their bosoms, and wondered who would be next to stand before the magistrates to answer in the city of the witch. Martha Corley's, uh, Martha Corley's warrant is drawn up. The March evenings in Salem Village were fraught with dread. As the sun sank into the wooded hills, the darkness brought with it the uncertainty of what lay ahead in the shadowed hours before dawn. Was that a form in a flapping cape riding atop a stick silhouetted against the moon or a distant owl? Were the whispers overheard that of restless tree branches swaying in the breeze or a coven of witches hissing names of victims in the night? Every shape caught in a candle's glow became sinister. Doors and windows were latched, but against what and whom? On March 19, 1692, Edward Putnam and Henry Kinney went to Salem Town to file a formal complaint against Martha Corey. Henry Kinney Jr. was married to Mercy Lewis's sister, Priscilla, and had either witnessed Mercy's attacks or was privy to the knowledge of them. The following account was filed. There being complaint this day made before us by Edward Putnam and Henry Kinney Yeoman, both of Salem Village, against Martha Corey, the wife of Giles Corey of Salem, Farmers, far, say farm, uh, farmers for suspicion of having committed sundry acts of witchcraft and thereby donned much hurt and injury unto the bodies of Anne Putnam, the wife of Thomas Putnam of Salem Village, of Salem Village Yeoman, and Anna Putnam, the daughter of said, wow, Thomas Putman and Marcy, Mercy, Lewis, a single woman living in said Putnam's family, also, Abigail Williams, one of Mr. Paris, his family, and Elizabeth Hubert, Hubbard, Dr. Griggs' maid, you are therefore in their, in their majesties, magistrates' names, wow, hereby required to apprehend and bring before us Martha Corey, the wife of Giles Corey, above said on Monday, next being the 21st day of this instant month, at the house of Lieutenant Nathaniel Ingersoll's of Salem Village, about 12 of the clock in the day, in order to her examination relating to the premises, and hereof you are not to fail, dated Salem, March the 19th, 1691-2, P.S., whatever that means, Jonathan Corwin, John Hawthorne. Reverend D.O. Lawson traveled from Boston on that same day to see for himself what was happening in the village to which he had once administered. He had heard the report that Tatuba Indian announced during her inquisition that his wife and child had died due to witchcraft. He booked the room at Ingersoll's Ordinary. The sun was sinking behind gray clouds, and the atmosphere in the common room of the tavern took on an ominous feeling. It was not helped by the visit of young Mary Walcott, who was 17, Reverend Paris's nearest neighbor and cousin to Ann Putnam, Jr. Mary Walcott's father, Jonathan, had married Thomas Putnam's sister. Mary's own mother had died when she was eight, leaving six children, of which Mary was one of the two girls. Her stepmother bore another seven children, again, two of them girls. The chores falling to the females of the house would have been arduous, yet Mary had it far better than many of the other girls her age in the village who had been orphaned by the Indian Wars. Many had come to the tavern that evening with the appearance of only to say hello to her former minister, Reverend Lawson. Nathaniel Ingersoll, the tavern's owner, was a distant relative of Mary's. 
after Mary had seen the clergyman. Let me see here. What, what happened here? Okay, it skipped again on me. Hang on. Give me a minute. Okay. After Mary had seen the reverend, it skipped like two pages. My tablet is old, like I said. And was about to depart, she stopped inside the doorway and screamed. Something had bitten her, she wailed. Ingersoll grabbed a candle and held it near her wrist. He and Lawson looked at what appeared to be upper and lower teeth marks. If Lawson thought this was unnerving, his visit to the parsonage that evening would give the visiting clergyman something to haunt his dreams. Voices on the wind taunted, Welcome back to Salem Village, Reverend Lawson. Chapter 11 They Are Distracted That Saturday evening, March 19th, Reverend Lawson left Ingersoll's tavern and walked a short distance to Reverend, distance to Reverend Paris's house. What thoughts must have been raging through his mind after just witnessing Mary Walcott's bite marks? Was this really happening? He turned right onto the narrow road leading to the parsonage. The moon bobbed in and out of sight behind scurrying clouds, throwing shadows one moment only to withdraw them the next. He was relieved to see light shining through the ripple glass of the parsonage windows ahead. That relief would be short-lived. There is no report to say whether Paris was happy to see the former minister of Salem Village or fearful of what the Boston clergyman might witness within the walls of his home. The men had not long to wait. Within a few minutes of Reverend Lawson's arrival, Paris's niece, Abigail, began darting to and fro about the room, unable, apparently, to sit still. She flapped her arms like a bird and whispered, wish, 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 imitating the sound of wings flying. She was hurled about so violently at times that the men tried without success to restrain her. She suddenly stopped and stared in horror at a corner of the room, pointing a trembling finger at empty air. She announced Good Goody Nurse's specter was hovering in the air. The others turned to look but saw nothing. Do you not see her? Anne cried. Why, there she stands. Nurse's shape, obviously thrust out, uh, out of the ambiguous book, for Anne to sign as she yelled out, I won't, I won't, I won't take it. I do not know what book it is. I am sure it is none of God's book. It is the devil's book for aught, I know. She suddenly ran for the fireplace and began picking up lit kindling, tossing the small sticks around the room. She ran at the flames as if, as if to climb up the chimney. Paris told the shocked reverend she had attempted to do so before. Just as the, the, the Lowestock case mentioned earlier, the afflicted girl in that report ran about saying, hush, hush, while flapping imaginary wings. She too had run towards the fire as if to be consumed by its flames. It is interesting how often the Salem Village girl's afflictions mirrored those of previous witchcraft reports. That very evening, Giles Corey would report that he had been troubled during his evening prayers before retiring to bed. Complaining often that his wife Martha criticized his phrasing of prayers, he found now as he knelt that though he opened his mouth, he could not utter, utter the prayer. My wife did perceive it, and it came towards me and said she was coming to me, Giles reported. After this, in a little space, he was able to pray. A Witch Among the Righteous The following day was, was the Sabbath. As the visiting reverend, Diodat Lawson was invited to give the sermon. 
As the villagers took their seats, a gasp was heard from those who had heard the rumors of Martha Corey Specter attacking Ann Putnam Jr. and Sr. Bold as brass, Martha swept into the cold cavernous room and took her rightful seat among the other church members. Reverend Lawson steadied himself and began the opening prayer only to be interrupted by several sore fits from the girls reacting to Corey's presence. A psalm was sung, was sung with relative peace, but as the minister began his sermon, Abigail Williams blurted out, Now stand up and name your text. Reverend Lawson, probably shaken by such an impertinent interruption, by a child no less, recovered and named the text upon which his sermon was predicated. It is a long text, Abigail challenged impudently. No sooner had Lawson begun his talk than Mrs. Pope, emboldened by young Abigail's outburst, yelled out, Now there is enough of that. Horrified members of the congregation placed their hands on those disrupting the proceedings and admonished them to be quiet. It worked for a short period of time until Abigail supposedly saw the shape of Martha Corey depart the woman's body and float up to the beam in the meeting house ceiling. She cried out that Goody Corey was sitting on the beam, suckling her yellow bird between her, finger, between her fingers. And Putnam Jr.'s accusation of Corey's yellow bird had evidently been passed along to Abigail, perhaps within moments of entering the meeting house that morning. All eyes turned upward to where the historical girl was pointing. And Putnam stated that the bird had flown to Reverend Lawson's hat that was hanging on a peg behind him. The congregation's heads pivoted to that location. Those sitting near Anne hushed her. After some moments of confusion, the beleaguered minister continued and was able to finish his sermon. It was a short victory, for Abigail called him out again in the afternoon session, declaring, I know no doctrine you had. If you did name one, I have forgot it. For a child to act out in public this way in the Puritan community was unheard of. Obviously, the afflicted's notoriety had emboldened them to act in more and more brash and abusive ways, even to the, even, even to the irreverent interruptions of a church service. The females crying out against their accusers were seeing unprecedented attention from the members of the community. Adult men who were used to their wives and children being in a subservient position were now praying over them and inviting neighbors to witness the fits and outbursts of their family. Children who were relegated to a station not much above the servants who helped with chores were now being coddled and listened to. Their words were taken down by men who previously saw them as invisible. This was a new power, and one that would bring the small village to its knees. Martha Corey left the meeting house in defiance, announcing again that she was a gospel woman. And even if the others could not see the mischief the girls were concocting, she could. Incessed at being ridiculed and accused of sitting astride a beam with the yellow bird in front of a congregation she felt superior to, this was the final straw. Enough was enough. As the following morning would show, it was only just the beginning. That night, the specters were again flying through the eaves at the homes of Elizabeth Hubbard and Mary Walcott, who claimed to see Rebecca Nurse's shape, although they said she did not hurt them. Martha Corey, apparently no respecter of Sabbath, sent her shape to torment Abigail Williams and Elizabeth Hubbard. It would be Corey's last outing as a specter before she was hauled Monday morning into the meeting house she had haughtily departed the previous Sabbath afternoon. At noon, at noon Joseph Herrick, 
holding a warrant accusing her of witchcraft, escorted her into a packed assembly numbering many hundred, according to the Odette Lawson. Martha Corey's Inquisition. Reverend Nichols Noyes offered the opening prayer. Samuel Paris was offered the position of scribe, and the meeting's notes are seen in his neat hand. Ezekiel Cheever would be giving testimony excuse me, during Corey's examination, examination to report on the meeting. He and Edward Putnam were party to it, Martha's house, nine days prior. He was therefore excused as the court's usual scribe for the proceedings. Judge Hawthorne once again commanded the room with his confident presence and, once again, began with the presumption of guilt. All right, parentheses, the spelling and verbiage or as it appeared on the document. In parentheses, this will be fun. March 21st, that was me saying it, 1692. Here we go. Mr. Hawthorne, you are now in the hands of authority. Tell me now what you, why you hurt these persons. Martha Corey, I do not. H, who doth? K, <laughs> pray, give, pray give me leave to go to prayer. This request was made... This request was made sundry times, H. We do not send for you to go to prayer, but tell me why you hurt these. K. I am an innocent person. I never had, had to do with witchcraft since I was born. I am a gospel woman. H. Do not you see these complain of you? K. The Lord opened the eyes of the magistrates and ministers. The Lord show his power to discover the guilty. H. Tell us who hurts these children. K. I do not know. H. If you be guilty of this fact, you think you can hide it. K. The Lord knows. H. Well, tell us, won't you know? Well, tell us what, tell us what you know of this matter. K. Why I am a gospel woman, and do you think I can have to do with, 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 with witchcraft too? H. How could you tell then that the child was bid to observe what class you were when some came to speak with you? Cheevers. Oh, Cheevers. Okay, Cheevers. Interrupted her and bid her not to begin with, lie, with a lie, and so Edward Putnam declared the matter. Mr. Hath, who told you that? K. He said the child said, Cheev, which is Cheevers. You spoke falsely. Then Edward Putnam read again from, from, from a disposition. Mr. H. Why did you ask if the child told what class you were? K. My husband told me the others told. H. Who told you about the class? Why, why did you ask that question? K. Because I heard the children told what class the other were. Goodman. Corey. Okay, good. <laughs> See, that's what I'm trying to figure out, guys, so bear with me. Goodman. Corey, did you tell her? Goodman Corey. Okay, that's what I thought it was. The old man denied that he told her so. H. Did you not say your husband told you so? K. No answer. H. Who hurts these children now? Now look upon them. K. I cannot help it. H. Did you not say you would tell the truth? Why you asked that question? How come you, how come you to the knowledge? K. I did but ask. H. You dare thus lie, you dare thus to lie in all this assembly. You are now before authority. I expect the truth. 
You promised it. Speak now and tell what clause. Who told you what clause? K. Nobody. H. How came you to know that the children would be examined what cloth you wore? K. Because I thought the child was wiser than anybody if she knew. H. Give an answer you said your husband told you said your husband told you. K. He told me the children said I afflicted them. H. How do you know what they came for? Answer me this truly. Will you say how you came to know what they came for? K. I heard speech that the children said. I parentheses afflicted them troubled them and i thought that they might come to examine h but how did you know it k i thought they did h did you not say you would tell the truth who told you what they came for k nobody h how did you know k i did think so h but you said you knew so child hq abigail williams there was a man whispering in her ear h what did he say to you K. We must not believe all these distracted ch all that these distracted children say. H. Cannot parentheses he tell you what the man whispered. K. I saw nobody. H. But did you hear? But did but did not you hear? Okay. Here's a asterisk. No. Here was extreme agony of all the afflicted. H. If you expect mercy of God, you must look for it in K. God's way by confession. H. Did you look to find mercy by aggravating your sins? A. Okay. It's true thing. Wow. Okay. H. Look for it then in God's way. K. So I do. H. Give glory to God and confess then. K. But I cannot confess. H. Do you not see how these afflicted do charge you? K. We must not believe distracted persons. H. Who do you improve to hurt them? K. I improve none. H. Did you not did you not say our eyes were blinded? Our eyes were blinded you would open them? K. Yes, to accuse the innocent. Then crossly gave then crossly gave in evidence. H. Why cannot the girl stand before you? K. I do not know. H. What did you mean by that? K. I saw them fall down. H. It seems to be an insulting speech as if they could not stand before you. K. They could not stand before others. But you said they cannot stand before you. Tell me what was the turning what, what was that turning upon the spit by you? K. You believe the children that are distracted? I saw no spit. H. Here are more than two that accuse you for witchcraft. What do you say? K. I'm innocent. Then Mr. Hawthorne read further across his evidence. H. What did you mean by that the devil could not stand before you? She denied it. H. Sober witnesses confirmed it. K. What can I do? Many rise up against me. H. Why confess? Why confess? So I would if I were guilty. K. Here are sober parson. Here are sober persons. What do you say to them? H. You are a gospel woman. Will you lie? Abigail cried out. Next set. Next Sabbath the sacrament day, but she shall not come. Come there, Corey. I do not care. H. You charge these children with distraction. It is, of note of <laughs> it is a note of distraction when persons vary in a minute, but these fix upon you. This is not the manner of distraction. K. When are okay, when all are against me, what can I help it? You know, what, what can I help it? H. Now tell me the truth, will you? 
Why did you say that the magistrates and ministers' eyes are blinded? You would open them. She laughed and denied it. H, now tell us how we shall know. Who doth hurt if these? Who doth hurt these if you do not? K, can an innocent person be guilty? H, do you deny these words? K, yes. H, tell us who hurts these. We came to be a terror to eat. Okay, tell us who hurt these. We came to be a terror to evildoers. You say you would open our eyes. We are blind. K, if you say I'm a witch. H, you said you would show us. She denied it. H, why do you not show us? K, I cannot tell. I do not know. H, what did you strike? Okay, what did you strike the maid at, at Mr. Tho? At, at Mr. Tho, partners with. K, I never struck her in my life. Here are two that, here are two that see you strike her with an iron rod. K, I had no hand in it. H, who had? Do you believe these children are bewitched? K, they may for aught. Okay, they may for aught. I know I have no hand in it. H, you say you are no witch. Maybe you mean you never. Maybe, maybe you mean you. Maybe you mean you. Ah, oh man. Ugh, sorry, guys. Maybe you mean you never commented with the devil. Did you never deal with 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 any familiar? K. No, never. H. What bird was that the children spoke of? Then witnesses spoke. H. What bird was it? K. I know no bird. H. It may be. You have engaged. Maybe you have engaged. You will not confess, but God knows. K. So he doth. H. Do you believe you shall go unpunished? K. I have nothing to do with witchcraft. H. Why was you not willing your husband should come to the former session here? K. But he came for all. H. Did you not? Did not you take the saddle off? K. I did not know what it was for. H. Did you not know what it was for? K. I did not know that it would be of any benefit. Somebody said that she would not have helped. She would not have have them help to find out which would find out witches. H, did you not say you would open our eyes? Why, why do you not? K, I never thought of a witch. K, is it a laughing matter to see these afflicted persons? H, she denied it. H, several proved it. K, ye are all against me, and I cannot help it. H. Do you not believe there are witches in the in, in the country? K. I do not know that there is any. Okay. H. Do not you know that Tatuba confessed it? K. I did not hear her speak. H. I find you will own nothing without several witnesses, and yet you will deny for all. It was noted when she bit her lips, several of the afflicted were bitten. Okay. It was noted when she bit her lips, several afflicted were bitten. When she was urged upon it that she bit her lips safe, she would harm is there in it, Mr. Noise. I believe it is apparent she practiceth witchcraft in the congregation. There is no need of images. H. What do you say to all these things that are apparent? K. If you will all go hang me, how can I help it? H. Were you to serve the devil ten years, tell how many? She laughed. The children cried. There was a yellow bird with her. When Mr. Hawthorne asked her about, about it, she laughed. When her hands were at liberty, she afflicted persons with a pinch. H. Why do you, 
Why do not you tell how, how the devil comes in your shape and hurts these? You said you would. K, how can I know how? H, why did you say you would show us? She laughed again. What book is that you, you would have these children write in? Okay, what book were, what book, where should I have a book? I showed them none, nor have none, nor brought none. The afflicted cry out. There was a man whispering in her ears. H, what book did you carry to Mary Walcott? Okay, I carried none. If the devil appears in my shape. The Needham said that Parker, some time ago, thought this woman was a witch. H, who is your God? K, the God that made me. Who is that God? K. The God that made me. H. What is his name? K. Jehovah. H. Do you know any other name? K. God Almighty. H. Doth he tell you that you pray to that he is God Almighty? K. Who do I worship but the God that made me? H. How many gods are there? K. One. How many persons? K. Three. H. Cannot you say there is one God and three blessed persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? Then she was troubled. H. Do you not see these children and women were rational and sober as their neighbors when your hands are fastened immediately? They were seized with fits and the, and the standers by. Partial, answer partially Ill, illegible on account of folded paper. Said she was squeezing her fingers, her hands being eased by them that, that held them on purpose for trial. Quickly, after the marshal said, she hath bit her lip, and immediately after the afflicted were in an uproar. H. Torn. Why you hurt these, or, or who doth? She denieth any hand in it. H. Why did you say, if you were a witch, you should have no pardon? K. Because I am woman. Salem Village, March 21st. The, rev <laughs> the revert? I'm trying to figure this out. Mr. Samuel Paris being desired to take in... Uh, Writing the examination to Martha Corey hath returned it as aforementioned upon hearing the aforementioned and seeing what we did then see together. But the charges of the person then presence, we con we committed Martha Corey, the wife of Giles Corey of Salem Farms, unto the goal in Salem as permitment then given out. John Hawthorne, Jonathan Corwin, assist reverse. I'm trying, you know, okay. Martha Corey exam, Essex Institute collection number one. James Duncan Phillips Library, Peabody Essex Museum. Martha Corey had done herself few favors with her continual scorn and inappropriate laughter throughout her examination. She was caught out in her futile attempts to explain how she knew the two men were going to ask her about her clothing she wore while tormenting Ann Jr. She offered up lie after lie to save her skin. It did more to bury her than to save her. The spectators packed in elbow to elbow, were watching as these seemingly helpless victims were bitten, bound, and tortured. Yet this brazen woman laughed at their plight. And so Martha Corey was taken away to the goal, which is the jail, in Salem Town, as the night seeped into the dungeon a stink and squalor where she sat sh shackled. Was she laughing now? Okay, 725, okay. What sin? Unrepented of. Chapter 12. Martha Corey's examination had not gone well for the magistrate, John Hawthorne. In short, 
He had lost he had lost total control of the proceedings. At one point during the shrieks and stomping feet, Martha had leaned wearily upon the bar in front of her. Bethshua, Pope, screamed out that Martha, Martha's leaning was causing her great stomach pains. She hurled her muff at the accused witch, seeing it land without harm. Mrs. Pope removed her heavy shoe and threw it at Corey, hitting her squarely on the head. The chaos in the room had reached a fevered pitch. It was at this point that the girls declared there was a black man whispering into Martha's ear. Another looked out the, looked out the, meeting, the meeting house window and screamed that at least two dozen witches were arriving in the pasture outside for their black Sabbath with the devil. The afflicted said they heard the thrumming of a drum calling the witches to a blasphemous meeting just outside the sanctity of the village church meeting house. Don't you hear the drum beat? A girl cried out. Why don't you go, gospel, why don't you go, gospel witch? She yelled at Corey, mocking her constant declaration that, that morning that she, that she was a gospel woman. Why don't you go too? Hawthorne was feeling the wheels come off the cart as the thunderous screams, excuse me, and vibrations of stomping feet filled the room. Where Sarah Good had been stubborn, Martha Corey had had really vehemently denied all the charges and pressed all the charges impressed that it was the girls who were distracted. This was a church co co this was a church co coveted woman. No slave or homeless beggar. Even when Joseph Herrick had gone to the Cory farm to fetch Martha, the constable found Giles Cory suddenly standing up for her. Herrick had seen a jar of, of, of salve on the table at the Cory house. Witches were known to concoct ointments and potions. What was in the jar, he had asked. Giles came to Martha's defense and told the constable it was something Major Bartholomew Gedney, a local doctor, had given her the recipe for. As Martha was led away to jail, she screamed, You can't prove me a witch. The afflicted victims in the meeting house room felt they had done just that, their fits subsiding as Corey was yanked outside. Tatuba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne had now been languishing in jail almost three weeks. Sarah Good's infant was dead. Martha Corey's imprisonment, a woman whose name ranked with the church elite, must have come as a shock, and perhaps the knowledge that this crying out against villages, villagers had just taken on a very threatening tone. The sign warrant for the accused would underscore their fears that no one was immune to the gavel of witchcraft in Salem Village. Rebecca Nurse Rebecca Town Nurse had led an exemplary life. She was a devout wife, mother of eight, and churchgoer. Rebecca could be seen each Sabbath seated in her usual spot at the church meeting house, with the exception of the prior week. She had been sick in bed for nearly nine days. Rebecca was one of the many who immigrated to Massachusetts from England in 1621. Her family settled in Topsfield, where she and her seven siblings were taught the hardships of working a farm. Their acreage was modest at the time and sat just over the Salem village border. To the north. Property disputes over boundary lines ensued over the years with the Tupmans being more frequent antagonists. In 1640, Rebecca married Francis Nurse. He brought his new bride to Salem Village to a small farm. Francis was a hard-working woodworker and had served as a constable and juryman. In 1678, he had the good fortune to acquire a sizable farm of 300 acres from James Allen. It was a lease to buy option where Nurse would pay off the lease, excuse me, based on what the property brought in. Their new prosperous endeavors 
were not applauded by all in the village, especially the Putnams. The farm sat back from the road and was surrounded with open meadows and wooded acres. It was a setting anyone would covet. The farm was paying off handsomely by 1690, only two years before the witch outbreak began in the Salem village. Nurse had made each payment on time and his tax bracket had risen a sharp 39%. All eight of their children were grown and thriving. Their four grown sons and four daughters and their spouses helped with the burgeoning farm. Only the daughter, Sarah, was not yet married. While most might congratulate the nurses on their hard-won advancement, most people were not of the Puritan hierarchy. Gossip wagged, an ugly, gossip wagged an ugly, its ugly tongue. How had this family of no real account in the pages of, of landed gentry rose to such great, great, great a height? Had other forces been at work to fill their coffers and cradles? Many in the village thought the nurses, though God-fearing, hard-working people, had gotten above themselves. Orchard Farm butted up against the nurse farmland flanking Cowhorse River. Old Zerberbell Endicott had thought the Allen acreage rightfully his for years. James Allen, the very man who was leasing the property to the nurse's family, had married an Endicott, who died shortly thereafter. Rather than the property reverting back to the Endicott portfolio, Allen retained the land, including a copse of prime woodland in the northwest corner of his farm. Fights broke out between Endicott and Francis Nurse and his sons when they repeatedly cut wood from the lot. Endicott filed a lawsuit, but it came to naught. It had been many years, but memories in Salem Village had long shadows. Now, at 71 years old, Rebecca's health was failing. She was hard of hearing and had been bedridden as, as the screams of witchcraft filled the meeting house not more than a mile or two away. She had heard the stories of poor Reverend Paris's daughter and niece. She turned to her Bible for comfort and prayer as she lay in her white shrift and bed cap on the second floor of her spacious farmhouse. Her family tended to her, and as always, she counted her blessings for such love and support. Rumors of her own mother being a witch in Topsfield seemed far away. Joanna Town had been rumored to deal in witchcraft when Rebecca was younger, and the land disputes were at a peak. Nothing came of it. The stain of witchcraft was suspected to run in the family, as many accused in Salem Village would soon realize. Rebecca's two sisters, Mary Etsy and Sarah Cloyce, would, be would too be called before the magistrates in the coming months. Had the current gossip of witches flying about the village brought, brought home the pain these accusations had caused the town family so long ago? For now, Rebecca found solace in her scriptures and frequent attention from those who loved her. It was therefore no surprise to have several visitors come into her room the morning of March 22nd to see how she was. Elizabeth and Israel Porter, along with Porter's brother-in-law, Daniel Andrews and Rebecca's brother-in-law, Peter Cloyce, surrounded her bed and looked down with sympathy at the frail elderly woman. She seemed humbled and happy to see them. Okay, guys, I'm going to stop there. And again... We will continue this the first of the year. And I want to thank you for joining me tonight. I really appreciate it. And uh, please remember tomorrow's show will be, it will be at 3 p.m. Pacific. It is with, excuse me, let's get this. I'm tired right now. That's why I'm pushing this. It is with Chris Englehart. And we'll be talking about the Beatles. 
So it's going to be a pretty cool show. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming this, this Sunday. I hope you have a good rest of the weekend. And I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. And have a good evening.